I've moved the program that I had scheduled for 2020 to 2021. And I went to the archives themselves, to my colleagues, uh, archivists, archive directors, and say, what do you have? What can you give me? Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's fall, and normally that would be time to talk about this fall's arts events. But 2020 is anything but normal. So we talk with Jay Weisberg, director of Italy's Pordenone Silent Film Festival, which is going online for the first time ever. And with legendary silent film organist Dennis James, who does have a socially distanced fall tour planned. Plus, what do you do when you find a lost film? Staffers from the Chicago Film Archives tell us what they did. But first, be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio so you never miss an episode. Then pour yourself a glass of Prosecco, pretend you're in the countryside outside Venice and not on a computer, and enjoy this episode. Hollywood, 1923. Edward Sedgwick, who would go on to direct Buster Keaton in The Cameraman and Parlor Bedroom and Bath, among others, directs a rural melodrama for Universal called The First Degree, starring Frank Mayo. A modest hit in its day, the film winds up being lost like so many others. And then, 97 years later, it turns up. To be precise, it turned up by a circuitous route in the collection of the Chicago Film Archives. I spoke with two Chicago Film Archives staffers about it. I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Yasmin Psuki, and I'm the collections manager at CFA. And quick note about CFA is that we're a regional film archive that's dedicated to collecting, preserving, and identifying, and also making accessible films that represent the moving image heritage of the Midwest. I'm Olivia Babbler, and I'm the digitization manager at Chicago Film Archives. At CFA, we're dedicated to preserving a range of neglected moving images that would have easily become lost if they hadn't landed in our vault. So we collect mostly uh, films, educational films, industrial films, sponsored films, documentaries, and home movies. Uh, that's primarily what our collection is made up of. And uh, at this point, we have about 30,000 films in our collection um, since being founded in 2003, Nancy Watrous, 
who um, started CFA when the Chicago Public Library was looking to deaccession their rather large collection of 16 millimeter prints. Um, so she took those in and then started this as a nonprofit archive at that point in 2003. The bulk of what you have, as you say, is probably non-feature films. So how'd you wind up with a Hollywood feature? Sure. Yeah. So this is not typically the sort of thing that we collect, but um, it came in with a collection in 2006 called the Charles E. Cross Collection when a CFA volunteer named Carolyn Faber drove down to Peoria, Illinois to check out this guy's film collection um, that he had obtained from a man named C.L. Venard who had distributed and produced agricultural films in central Illinois from the teens until the 80s. Charles Cross was storing the films in a pretty unarchival way <laughs> and told Carolyn that he would throw them out if she didn't take the whole lot of them back to Chicago. So thankfully, she made the call to take them all. And at that point, um, the films were inventoried and checked for obvious signs of decomposition, but for a variety of reasons. You know, it can take years uh, to fully process a collection. This collection was primarily, you know, agricultural films. Um, the, the man who'd been collecting them was, uh, who worked in marketing for Caterpillar, the tractor company. And a lot of the films are along those lines of, you know, basically like propaganda films about why you should eat meat or how to plow a field, um, like very like industrial and agricultural films. So we did not expect to find this sort of feature length silent film within that collection. And you know, it, it has a fairly generic title, The First Degree, so it never really, uh, this film never really got prioritized for that reason, is that we were kind of just expecting that everything in this collection was agricultural in nature and not, um, not the sort of thing that the general public would be interested in, in finding necessarily. But it did have a, re there was kind of a reason for this film to be distributed by this guy, which is that it is, it is of a sort of agricultural subject in the course of being a melodrama. Exactly, yeah. And we know that he made, he made films, he distributed films, and most of the, the material, again, was, was agricultural in nature. So it totally makes sense that this film would have ended up in his hands um, because it is a rural melodrama that would have probably appealed to the parts of the country that he was distributing films at the time in central Illinois and the Midwest in general. Um, though it doesn't have a, like a s explicit Midwest connection. It's very like vaguely rural. But yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense that uh, it ended up in this collection of agricultural films for that reason. I imagine the fact that we're in the middle of COVID is one reason that you had time to sort of go through this stuff and found what this film was. Yeah. Um, inspecting, cataloging, and digitizing films from our own collection frequently gets put on the back burner because... Before COVID, there were always new collections coming in the door, always grants to apply for, stock footage orders to attend to. Um, the transfer suite was usually pretty swamped with client films that other organizations and individuals were hiring us and paying us to transfer. But when the pandemic hit and then we were starting to trickle back into the office, there was a brief moment when I was able to step back and focus on the films in our own collection. 
You know, I've been methodically trying to prioritize films for digital preservation based on their condition and their uniqueness to our archive. Um, and I did keep coming back to this cross collection because some of the oldest films in our archive are from that collection. So I'd more or less been choosing films for digitization based on their titles and whether or not they had an obvious tie to the Midwest um, as we're a regional archive. We knew that we had several reels labeled the first degree with a question mark um, because of poor handwriting, but the title, again, hadn't stood out to any of us. Um, and we never would have assumed that it was a lost silent film. It was one of the last films in the collection really to get a proper inspection as I and as I worked on processing the film, I consulted the Library of Congress's silent film database uh, and came to understand that it was a unique print. Um, yeah, so I think that, I, I honestly don't know when we would have identified this as a lost film if it hadn't been for the pandemic and things slowing down because of it, which kind of makes me wonder what archives would find if they always had the resources and the time to do this sort of thing. So you discover you have a lost film. What do you do with it then? Well, for this film in particular, as soon as Olivia mentioned to me that, you know, I think this print is unique and she had already checked with the Library of Congress and everything. So basically, um, there were a few things that we needed to do. And one of them was definitely to get in touch with other film archives and to make sure that they weren't, that they also didn't happen to have a copy of the print. Um, Especially for me, I was just checking in with archives in Europe um, because they actually have, a, many of the bigger ones have a mandate to kind of collect silent film, especially American silent film as part of their mission. So it's important to double check the other archives. Um, then also, you know, there was just a lot of research in that way that needed to happen first. And also um, Olivia and I had gone in touch with some people at Universal to try to figure out the, um, to let them know that we had a copy of a film um, that was unique and that was in good condition, and also to see if there was anything that we needed to be aware of in terms of copyright. Um, there was also a lot of discussion, or at least just kind of brainstorming about how to uh, approach the digitization itself. Um, at first, you know, it, luckily the film was in pretty good condition, so it didn't need a lot of interventions, and also in talking with Olivia, it just became immediately obvious that, you know, we shouldn't finagle with it too much in terms of um, any kinds of repairs or anything, if it wasn't necessary, because if this is the only print, then we probably shouldn't do much to it except to digitize it, um, which Olivia did using perhaps the most gentle machine for that kind of uh, film that we have. Um, so it was... I mean, that was a big part of what happened immediately after. And then also there's just a lot of research that goes into finding more about the people starring in the film, the filmmakers themselves, cinematographer, any kind of information or leads you can find about the film and its production. That's usually very important uh, at that stage. I found that the title was listed as lost um, at the end of June. And then Yasmin and I spent basically all of July emailing other archives around the world, just double checking with them that they didn't have any elements from the film before we told anyone outside of our organization. You know, like we didn't want 
to get ahead of ourselves, we wanted to be very cautious about making any sort of announcement that, you know, was potentially incorrect um, about the uniqueness of the film. So we really wanted to do our due diligence. But then I also, you know, within a couple weeks of identifying it as unique, I, I wanted to get it transferred as soon as possible. So I scanned all five reels on the, uh, we have a Kineta archival scanner, which is extremely gentle. And the film was in great condition, very few problems. Uh, we needed to do very little prep on it um, to scan it. And we wanted to make sure we didn't do any of the print. We couldn't reverse. It was very nerve-wracking at that point, honestly, <laughs> knowing that this was potentially and, and most likely the only print of it in the world. You know, scanning it, I was very nervous. But it went very smoothly, thankfully. So if this were normal times, you'd be showing it at festivals or maybe uh, at the Music Box in their silent uh, series or something like that. Right now you can't do any of that. What do you think the, the future holds for people getting to see this film? Yeah, I think we're, um, we're discussing several ideas, but I think we are trying to play it by ear too and then see if there's a a way to, I mean, the hope is that we would be able to screen the film next year at um, local venues and then maybe other festivals who have already expressed some measure of interest in screening the film. Um, but it's still a bit too early to say, Not, I mean, it's because of the pandemic and also the way film festivals work and their work is also kind of delayed significantly because of um, the current circumstance. So... Ideally, though, we would still be able to screen the film, and then the idea is that eventually we would be able to have the copy online for people to view, like a screener version of the film. Um, and then we'll see. Uh, hopefully people remain interested until we figure things out, given the current circumstance. But I think everything is, very ne is at this very nebulous stage, you know, because of the pandemic. So it's a bit hard to say. Well, 97 years, what's another one, so... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we hope that the excitement around this film's discovery will lead new audiences to the many wonderful, one-of-a-kind films that we preserve at CFA that I think are just as deserving of preservation or a podcast episode or anything uh, as this film. And, you know, I, I do think that this film is genuinely like a very good film. Um, you know, there's a great dog in it. The villain has a great <laughs> villainous mustache. But um, we have a lot of other unique films in our collection that uh, I hope that people will check out uh, now that they've heard about CFA through this. A link for the Chicago Film Archives will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. La Giornate del Cinema Muto 
in Pordenone, Italy, is the premier event for screening of silent film discoveries, restorations, and retrospectives, assembled from archives around the world. And usually we have special correspondent Lockie Heiss reporting on what he saw at the Pordenone Silent Film Festival after it happens in October. But this year we'll all have the chance to get a taste of the festival as it goes online for the first time. I spoke with festival director Jay Weisberg about how they responded to the changes forced on them by COVID and what this year's online version will be like. We're going into our 39th edition as a festival. And one of the strengths of the festival, to my mind, is that it's a thematic event, which means that each year I I select various themes, which um, either are ones that I've wanted to do myself or generally ones that have been proposed by by scholars or people who are just passionate about silent film. Um, And then it, it gives us all a way to understand the medium better, to really delve into topics that, which can be, um, you know, things like uh, we did a fantastic two actually years running a series on nasty women. So using the, the sort of, you know, Trumpian nasty woman um, insult, so to speak, which was then embraced by the feminist community. Uh, and we did programs of slapstick women comics. So we've done that. We've done a program on William Cameron Menzies, the art director. We've done uh, so many different kinds of of thematically based programs. Obviously, this year we weren't able to do that because with all of the archives closed or running on skeletal staff at the moment, um, restorations have stopped, digitizations have stopped. So there was just suddenly no way that I could have done the program that I already had planned for this year. Uh, in on any kind of online way. In addition to that, I reasoned that nobody's going to be taking off from work if people have work still for a week-long online event. So I've moved the program that I had scheduled for 2020 to 2021, and I went to the archives themselves, to my colleagues, uh, archivists, archive directors, and say, what do you have? What can you give me? with the idea that it would just be one feature length program per day during the week and two on the weekends. So we're still showing wonderful things, things that I'm very proud of. It is, however, a very different event from the kind of festival that we would normally be presenting. Yeah, because what does it run normally? I mean, is it like 9 a.m. to midnight kind of festival or... Yeah, exactly. It, it's precisely it. It's 9 a.m. to midnight, sometimes even a little bit later. And sometimes there's barely any time for, for lunch and dinner, depending on how, how tightly I've packed the program. But so, yeah, so it's really, it's a really full-on experience, which is also one of the, for me, one of the really important things of the festival. It's about full immersion, because you can go to, you can take uh, silent film classes at, at university for, you know, a number of years, and what you're going to be getting are masterwork, and you're going to be getting very directed um, uh, introductions into a particular film or a particular director. For me, one of the great strengths of the festival is that by immersing yourself literally from 9 a.m. to midnight, you get a far better understanding of the period. You get an understanding of the, the diversity of filmmaking styles. You get an understanding of the differences in in, um, in in time periods, how a film from 1912 differs from a film from 1914. You, you get all of these things in an incredibly heavy way, heavy in the sense that you're so overwhelmed, in a sense, by the amount of things that you 
see that there are times when you just can't process it all. But so it's afterwards. It's once you sort of allow all of this to maturate within you and and uh, think about what you've seen and begin to put it together in your head that, as I say, you get a much better understanding of the period and what silent film or rather what film is between 1895 and 1930, whatever date you want to give it, um, th- than you would in any normal, so-called normal situation. And I think one of the things, too, is it's not just that you're seeing a, a broader range of film and not just the diet of masterpieces, but also one of the things that really, really always strikes me about Pornoni programs is countries that you've never seen films from. You know, you just understand the the commercial industries in so many different places. Absolutely. And for me, for example, several years ago, I did a big program of Polish silent film. And one of the things when I went to the archive in Warsaw, I said to them is that besides the, the, the fiction films that I want to show, I also want to show newsreels. I want to see what life was in, at this moment. And so I was programming two sometimes even three newsreels from Poland from before each film. So it gave a better picture of where these films were made um, uh, of, of, of that particular moment in time, especially in a country like Poland, which was such a, um, which of course didn't become a country until 1919, an independent country. So it was all very new and fresh and um, questions of nationality, of patriotism, of all these sorts of things, the weight of history, uh, as well as just normal, you know, normal events, sporting events, uh, fashion shows, those sorts of things to give, again, an understanding that this is a, a, a regular European society that is also making some wonderful films. Now, when people go to the, the festival in a normal year, you know, are there people who sit there literally 9 a.m. to midnight or do you think people sort of find their own path through the programming? <laughs> A bit of both. Um, I have to admit that I've been going to Porto Nonis since 2001. Um, and until I was director, I was that person that was there at 9 a.m. And I left when the last film ended. I went out for lunch and dinner, yeah. But other than that, I was at every screening. Uh, I did not miss one. But there are other people who know, who do select um, uh, what they want to see or they feel that to see that many films in one day is just too much and it is exhausting. There's no question. Um, so they pick and choose what sections they want to follow, for example. So sometimes I'll program, um, let's say I'll program a serial. And generally what I'll do is I'll start that at 9 a.m. So that if people decide, oh, they're not really interested in the serial, it means they can come at 9.30 or 9.45 and they can start the day that way. Or maybe I'll put it at the end and again, they can leave a little bit earlier. So I, I, try, I do try to program with that in mind as well. Yeah, because the the worst thing is hearing the next morning. Oh, you didn't stay for that l- little movie at eleven thirty. It was fantastic. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> In fact, um, for years, David Robinson, my predecessor, was would program something called Goodnight Silence, which was the very last film screen was this, would be a short that just gave you that little. It was like um like a little you know after dinner chocolate. It right. was just something that was <laughs> lovely and sweet and made you happy to say, okay, I've finished the day in a wonderful way. And those became the most popular films of the of the, of the of of the editions. So everybody really was staying until that very end because they wanted so much to see that last uh, sweet. <laughs> so what did you plan for this year? How did you approach? thinking about it as, I mean, is it like a greatest hits of Portanone or what? No, we're not showing, um, 
for the most part, only I think two of the films that we're showing now are things that we've shown in the past, and that's only because they've uh, had recent restorations, and so it gives you a new sense. And also, they were quite some time ago. We're showing, for example, a, a Chinese film called Guo Feng from 1935, and we last screened that in 1997. One of the reasons that I, I, I particularly wanted a Chinese film too this year was given that. China and Italy were the two countries that, at the beginning of the COVID crisis, were the most uh, were the hardest hit. I wanted to to extend a hand, in a sense, to to the China Film Archive to say, you know, we 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 got through this together, and let's uh, let's also collaborate um, for the festival. So they they proposed this wonderful film, and I said yes, even though we had screened it in 1997. But as as you probably know. Uh, Chinese silent film is, is just almost unavailable. They right. made wonderful films, and yet it's, it's so difficult to see. So I, I, was very, I am very happy, in fact, to, to show that. Basically, my, for the most part, the, my, my thoughts were I would just send emails to my colleagues in the archives and say, what do you have? What do you have that you've restored recently that's been digitized? Obviously, those are the two key things that I needed to, to, to have on board and um, because nobody can do any new digitizations right now. So um, I asked them and they came up with, and I wanted something that was quite international. I wanted a range of countries, a range of types of film, and they really um, came through, as always, with some wonderful things. Speaking of digitization, so um, how do you typically show the films? Um, it varies. We still want to prioritize 35 millimeter as much as possible. Uh, however, in the world that we're living now, when so many restorations are only done digitally, it means that my choice is either showing a new digital restoration or not showing the film at all. And especially when it's a thematic presentation and that particular film, which has just been restored, is something that really... Um, adds uh, and contributes to an understanding of whatever theme it is that we're presenting, whether it's the work of a particular director or a particular style or a country, those sorts of things for me are, are the most important. Is it a disappointment that increasingly we are showing more digital? Absolutely. However, we're still showing more than 50% uh, 35 millimeter. Yeah. I mean, do people, you know, do you get people grumbling about uh, digital or do they not, <laughs> not notice? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Everybody notices. Every, this is a crowd that notices absolutely whether it's digital or film. Uh, and frankly, I'm delighted that they still do, because one of my concerns is that younger audiences aren't noticing the difference anymore. They don't know because they're watching things, of course, on their iPhones, they're watching things on television, they're watching things on their iPads. They, they're, they're losing an understanding of what it means to watch something that's on film versus digital and how, and how to look how to judge what it is that you're looking at. Um, so that concerns me. Uh, and so I'm happy that people notice. At the same time, I wish they would maybe grumble a little bit less and understand that if I wanted to do a festival where I only showed 35 millimeter, I could do it, but it means that I'd have to chuck out any kind of thematic programming because it's just not possible to go in depth anymore uh, and, and be rigid about screening 35. Right, and there are festivals that do that, but they don't have the thematic component, and it's just a different thing. So exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. One program that I, I uh, that is more sort of my selection than, let's say, the archive selection is that uh, 
several months ago, there was the Orphan Film Symposium uh, based out of NYU, which of course this year was online, and their theme was water. And as I was watching a number of the presentations and films that they screened, this was during the really the height of the lockdown. I had this sudden real yearning to to travel again. I mean, this is the longest I've been in one place in 17 years. Right. And um, I, I'm, I'm somebody who, who's used to traveling at once or twice a month. And um, and I was watching these films and I had such an urge to, 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 to you know, get to the airport and go somewhere <laughs> and be both in the places that I love and see the people that I love and also explore new places that I decided why not put together a program of travel films that captures this. So I asked a number of archives if they could send me suggestions. And each of the archives sent, you know, sometimes five, sometimes 10, actually Gomo sent me tons uh, of, of travel films. And I made a selection, obviously it's highly personal, of films that show places that we know and love like New York and London, Cairo, um, as well as places that many of us haven't been to. So let's say, you know, sort of um, uh, a lovely landscape in, in the Czech Republic. But the key is that all of these films, when you watch them, you think, I want to be there. I right. want to I want to go. I want to get out of my armchair and, and, and go. <laughs> and so that's a program that I'm very happy with and also that I feel is quite uh, a much, very much a statement of what's happening now. Well, so this clearly is is an all digital festival since people will be watching it on their devices at home. Um, so yeah, tell me what what this one, how this one runs. The festival is the third to the tenth of October from Saturday to Saturday. During the weekdays, the um, we'll be having one screening per day. Um, in the evening Italian time, but every film will be available for 24 hours. So no matter what time zone you're in, you'll have the opportunity of, of, of accessing the film. Following each film, there'll be a live discussion that will include me, a, a scholar or archivist, or both, and a musician. So the musician who's accompanied each film, every film has uh, recorded accompaniment that's been specially recorded in the last couple of weeks, actually, but our, by our usual exceptional band of, uh, of musicians who really have understood the art form of silent film accompaniment and are so sensitive to what is being shown on the screen, just in not only in terms of, of mood, but in terms of the, the rhythm of the film, the editing of the film, um, so they've recorded a new accompaniment for all of these films. And these are musicians who live in Australia, uh, the U.S., England, Germany, um, just, just all over the world, really. Uh, so that is the... So they'll be included in the conversations that we have because for me, they have such insight into all the films that we're showing. Now, earlier in the day, There'll also be uh, other programs. We'll be doing some book presentations, discussions with uh, authors who have recently written a book about uh, a particular element of silent cinema. Um, and also each of the musicians have recorded a kind of masterclass. So it allows the viewer to have an understanding of what that process is. How does a musician sit down with a film, often something that they've never seen before, that they have to improvise at that moment um, how do they go about that? How do they get a sense and an understanding of each film and know how to play for it? Well, yeah. So tell me, what are the what are the programs day by day? Um, I can't tell you exactly what is being shown on which day because that's still being figured out. But I'll tell you the different films that are being screened. Okay. So um, 
let's talk about some of the American films, for example, Penrod and Sam, which is a 1923 film directed by William Bodine, beautifully restored by the Library of Congress. This is based on the Booth Tarkington novel that had been made once before and was made several times after. And it's a truly delightful uh, slice of Americana. And Kevin Brownlow has written a catalog note for us for this. And um, it's just a pleasure from beginning to end. We also have um, a Sesu Hayakawa film, or Sesue Hayakawa. I've never been quite sure how one pronounces yeah, his neither. first name. <laughs> uh, called, <laughs> called Where Lights Are Low, which was thought to have been lost for decades. And then it was rediscovered with Croatian intertitled at the Film Archive in Belgrade, in Serbia. So the Serbians gave it to the Japanese, and the National Film Archive of Japan has done a restoration of the film. It's directed by Colin Campbell from 1921. It also includes a number of other actors who are Japanese. Unfortunately, at this time, of course, the, the concept of ethnic identity was, uh, let's say, fluid or um, <laughs> uh, non-representational. I'm not quite sure what we want to say. But so in this case, and it's certainly not the first time that Hayakawa did this, he was playing Chinese. Okay. And it's a story about a Chinese prince who uh, falls in love with a young woman and she uh, goes to San Francisco and is caught by white slave traders, or I, actually I shouldn't say white trade slave traders in this case, she, human traffickers, let's put it that way. Um, and he, of course, has to rescue her. And one of the things that's quite wonderful about this film, Where Lights Are Low, is that it really shows why Hayakawa was such a huge star, because it... it it enters into that matinee movie idol look that he had and, and his expressiveness with that. So you see scenes of him dressed in, in evening wear, you know, white tie and tails, looking absolutely just gorgeous. Um, and then also in traditional Chinese costume. And so he goes back and forth between the two. And I think this is also a really good way of understanding why he became the first international Asian superstar, why there were things about him that people could um, access on all different levels, not just the exoticism, but also something, as I said, that was just pure matinee movie idol. Yeah. yeah. So um, another American film we have is the Cecil B. DeMille film from 1917, A Romance of the Redwoods, which uh, stars Mary Pickford. So it's a, it's a Western that's been beautifully restored by George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York. And um, it's just lovely to see uh, this in such a fine print with the tinting and toning, and it just looks great. Another American uh, group, uh, we're doing a program that's done in conjunction with Lobster Film Archives in Paris and the Library of Congress, which is called um, Laurel or Hardy. So these are a series of five shorts featuring Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy before they became a team. In, in fact, in one case, Moonlight and Noses uh, Laurel isn't in it, but he's the director. Oh, uh, it's a very early title with Fay Ray, actually, and um, and that's interesting because part of it, one reel was discovered at the Library of Congress, the other reel was discovered at the um, National Film and Sound Archive in Australia, and the Library of Congress has been working very hard on putting the two reels together, so we have the complete, the complete short for the first time, and this is really the program the. Laurel or Hardy, it stems from a DVD that Lobster Films has just put out in France only 
but I know that there's discussions about making it available worldwide. Uh, I'm not quite sure who will be releasing that. It, so it, it covers a range of, of, of dates from the teens up through the, the mid-20s. They say just before they became an, uh, a, a comedy duo. And what's wonderful about this program is that you really get a sense of their individual characteristics and see how the, um, the personas that they were adopting as comedians were then amplified and, and um, weighed up in a way that made it so perfect when they began to work together. Yeah, yeah. All right, so, so far we're light on like seven-hour finish epics about the failure of the lichen harvest <laughs> or something like that. Are we going to get into to more total obscurity here? Or? Um, obscurity, uh, well, I, I can promise you that we're not going to have any seven-hour finish epics because they just don't work online. Yeah. You know, I tried, uh, it was another thing that I was thinking of, is how much patience do people have, really? Uh, and at the moment when we're really saturated with so much online content, I didn't want to go overboard. So I wanted to be respectful of that. I want people to actually be watching them and not suddenly going up to go to the bathroom, going up to get a cup of coffee, all of those sorts of things. So I've, I've, the longest film is the Chinese film, Guo Feng, that I mentioned earlier, which is, uh, which is two hours. But uh, it's a wonderful film. And I think that once people start to, to watch, they're really not going to, to, to stop. Uh, in terms of obscurity, I guess there are two films. Well, there's no, I've got three maybe that you might think is kind of obscure. Um, one is a 1913 Danish film. The English language title is Unjustly Accused. Um, the Danish title is Balletin's Daughter. And this is a, it's directed by Holger Madsen, who is one of the, the leading Danish directors in this period at a moment, of course, when Danish silent cinema, or rather I should say just Danish cinema, was, was um, recognized the world over as, as one of the finest uh, cinema industries at the time. And it stars a wonderful actress slash dancer named, or really dancer slash actress named Rita Sacchetto, who in fact performed with Anna Pavlova and was very much... Um, a champion of the new dance forms of that era. And she made a number of films in Denmark. This is the second film that she made. She dances quite a lot in it, which is wonderful. And um, it's just a beautifully composed, beautifully shot, atmospheric film. So that new, I think, is a bit obscure. We also have a, a, an Italian film um, from 1921 called La Tempesta in un Cranio. And that would translate as the Storm in the Skull. And it's a terrific comedy. I'm really sold already, comedy. you know, just, just from that title. <laughs> exactly, with that title. I mean, I think we've all had plenty of storms in our skulls in the last few months. So it's nice to have a film that kind of puts it together. And it's, um, it's a comedy about a, a, a man who comes from a long and uh, illustrious uh, family. However they have a, a streak of hereditary insanity. And he's convinced that he too is going to go crazy. So his fiance and his friends do all of these things that would seem to almost push him into becoming mad, but he doesn't just to prove indeed that he's not going to go mad. And it's just great fun. It, it's just, it, it, it's a delight. So that, and then uh, again, if we're looking at the less known corners of cinema history, we're showing one of the most important Greek silent films wow. from 1930 called The Apaches of Athens. 
And this is a film that um, was lost for decades and decades. It was very well known because at the time there was a, a, a full orchestral and choral score written for it. The, the premiere in Athens in 1930 was a huge event. The critics went wild and then the film was lost. Well, recently it was rediscovered where at the Cinémathèque Française in Paris. They gave it um, to they let the, the Greek film archive know, so they worked on uh, an impressive restoration. And uh, the world premiere of this was in February in Athens, so just before lockdown. Uh, they did record this orchestral and choral score, so we'll be showing the film in that version with that score recorded. Um, and, and that also, it, it, it's... Um, People talk about it as a kind of precursor to neorealism. There are really exceptional images that were shot on location in different parts of Athens, and it's really something that's, that, that definitely needs to be seen. I guess I have my, my week of October 3rd through 10th uh, pretty much scheduled at this, <laughs> at this point. Now, I saw something about uh, registration on the site. What's, what's the process here? Are there, is there a limitation to how many people can see, or what's, how does this work? No, there's no limitation at all. We've partnered with um, with an excellent platform here in Italy, which is experienced with this sort of thing. They've done a number of, of festivals in the last few months, in fact. And um, uh, so there's no limitation. Uh, please do register. Uh, there are three kinds of passes that you can get. The basic pass is only €9.90, which translates to just under $12, and that will give you access to everything. That means all the films, all the special content uh, is yours for the low price of (laughs) (laughs) €9.90. It sounds like I've done this kind of pitching before, but I promise I haven't. And and then if people are feeling more generous and want to support us, which I do hope they will, we have uh, a donor and super donor categories which will mean um, some merchandising that we'll be sending, um, uh, printed catalogs, that sort of thing. So we'll just like to plug one other thing, which is that um, um, for a number of years now, we've had something called the Collegium, which is a way of um, bringing younger people to the festival and exposing them to the wonders of, of, of silent film. So, we're doing this again this year. Obviously, it's going to be an online edition and uh, an online format even for the collegium. Normally, what that means is that we select 12 applicants. Uh, they're all people under 30. Uh, and each day during the, during the festival, we gather to talk about a particular scene that we've seen on screen, always hosting a scholar who may be the curator of that particular program or somebody who's done the restoration work on a film. And they'll maybe make a five or 10 minute presentation and the rest of the hour is just spent discussing the various themes. The idea behind the Collegium was both to to draw younger people in, but also to break down the barriers that exist between, let's say, somebody like Kevin Brownlow and a 21-year-old right. <laughs> who's not quite sure whether they want to go into silent film or not, but thinks that they're interested enough to at least join us for that one week. And, um, and it works beautifully because Kevin is the most uh, generous person on the planet and, and so easy to, to access. But until you know that, it's, you know, it's the God, it's Kevin Brownlow. So you don't know to do that. And um, the Collegium is a way of doing that. And it's a wonderful 
uh, it forms a wonderful community. Because we have to go online this year, it makes things a little bit more challenging, but we're all, we've all been in so many Zoom meetings. We decided, you know what, let's continue this. And so if anybody, any of your listeners now are under 30 and interested, go onto the website, look under the collegium and send a, a simple letter. It's not an official application. You don't have to fill out a form. It's just what we're looking for are people who are passionate about silent cinema and want to learn more, want to expose themselves to more. It might be that they might not never do anything again with, with about silent film. We've had, we've had filmmakers, we've had festival directors, we've had journalists, all sorts of people. The, the, the key thing is to turn them in a sense into ambassadors for the festival. Because as I said earlier, once you go, you want to come back. If the world goes back to normal, we all get our vaccines and we're all traveling again and the festival happens next year, do you still see it having some sort of online component in the future? I, I think that we sh we're moving in that direction, not in the direction of making it an online festival, but offering certain content. So we began something called the Silent Stream uh, a couple of months ago in which we're in a sense releasing online for streaming purposes that go for several that are on for several months some of our in a sense greatest hits so i think this is something that very much is uh, where many of us particularly archival festivals will be needing to go in the future and also it makes sense let's face it um for example, the October dates in Port, uh, for Pordenone aren't great for academics, for professors, for people, for students. It's a very difficult time to get away. So I can't tell you the number of times I have people telling me that they've always wanted to come and they're waiting until their retirement. Now, I'd love to get these people before they retire, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and generally, um, I'm, I'm really happy to say that generally what happens is that when people um, do come one time, they become hooked because that immersive experience really is a, is a, a game changer. But uh, as I say, I, so I do think that in the future, we will, of course, have the live event. Of course, we'll continue to be showing 35 millimeter. But throughout the year, if we can continue with our silent stream and show films that we've shown in the past, it only make, it, it makes sense. It makes sense for everybody. Registrations for the 2020 edition of the Pordenone Silent Film Festival are open now. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. If you've ever seen a silent movie classic in your hometown with a big booming organ from the 1920s being played by a guest organist, well, the chances are pretty good that it was Dennis James. For me, it was Orphans of the Storm in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas in the mid-80s, with James at the keyboard of the mighty Wurlitzer originally from the Paramount Theater in New York City. 
Dennis James has been touring for 50 years, bringing the magic of the silent movie experience to audiences all over North America and the world, including at Portinone. And though he saw his spring and summer schedule canceled in March, he'll be playing select dates this fall, including his 52nd annual Halloween show at his alma mater, Indiana University. I spoke with him about that and about his career as a living link to the original silent movie experience. I have to say I was a little surprised when you posted a fall schedule in July. It seemed very optimistic for the the world at that point. Um, seems more real now. But tell me about your your fall schedule and how that's all going to work. Um, uh, let's see. Everything at the moment starts up again October 4th. I'm, the, I'm in my, um, I think it's my 12th year as the house organist out at the Washington Center in Olympia, Washington, where they've got one of the world's great worlds for organs, just a fantastic instrument. And uh, we've been doing silent films as a series uh, uh, ever since, uh, oh, I think it's, it's got to be, I know it's, it's got to be the 12th anniversary season. So anyway, we open up the series, the 2020-21 series starts off October 4th, uh, and we're going to do a Harold Lloyd double feature. And then um, and then on that same trip, I'll be coming back the next weekend, October 10th and 11th, I'll be coming over to the, uh, we're in our, let's see, that's also, that's the same, it's the 12th series. Uh, I'm the house organist at the Coleman Theater, the historic Coleman Theater, with its original Wurlitzer pipe organ, one of the rare, you know, these organs get transplanted and, and sort of moved around. And this one's the actual one that was put in when the theater opened in 1929. And so we're going to be showing Alfred Hitchcock's uh, blackmail on two performances. We do an evening on Saturday and then an afternoon on Sunday. And people come from five states around to uh, see the silent films. They're really popular there. So that's the October 10 and 11. And then so it goes right on through. Um, uh, yeah, I'm on the road pretty much 60% of my time is spent traveling doing these performances. Now, how are they doing or how are they handling the audience? Are they blocking off seats so people are distanced or? Well, we're going to find out because this is my first uh, since the cancellations began. Uh, my last performance was March 8th. And um, the things began, it was the epicenter, Seattle, Washington. Um, And it was the epicenter at that point. And so everything began the next day. It was very interesting. Uh, You know, there were rumors that things were happening March 8th. And uh, we had uh, the biggest audience we ever had because at that point, things were starting to get canceled. uh, And everybody showed up for March 8th. And then uh, we showed the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, the Lon Chaney and using the original score from from 1924. And um, yeah, and so everything, uh, everybody was talking about what might happen. (laughs) So now I'm going to, this is the very place I ended in March and here we are October. Uh, I'll be starting up. So I have no idea. I think what it is, is everybody's following the uh, state guidelines uh, and mainly it's uh, making certain uh, I've watched some of the little videos. A lot of the theaters are putting out videos to describe exactly what the experience is. 
there's a really funny one in Indiana. There's a historic theater in southern Indiana. <laughs> it was really funny. But anyway, uh, yeah, they seem to be doing the social distance, which means that they seem to be blocking off seats. Um, so it's like there's two or three seats blocked, and then there's an open seat, uh, or there's a pair. They're seeming to let people that come together right. as a couple uh, sit together. and. But I, you know, I haven't experienced it firsthand, so it's all new to me. I'll, right. I'll, I'll answer that question after I've done it, my first one. So we'll see. Yeah. So then, uh, October twenty eighth, you're doing uh, blackmail again in Bloomington, Indiana, where you went to school. This yeah. is your fifty second annual Halloween program. That's it. I began my whole career there on October on on Halloween night, October. 31st at 1969 was the very beginning of this career. And at that time, I didn't know about the original scores. And I I had fallen under the tutelage of a East Coast prominent silent film performer uh, who played the organ, a guy named Lee Irwin, who was kind of legendary in the broadcasting world. He was Arthur Godfrey's music director. And Arthur Godfrey was this sort of avuncular host of a weekly uh, radio and then television. It, it, anyway, uh, and Godfrey used to play the ukulele. And um, and Lee was his um, sort of sidekick musician. He used to play the piano and organ and I guess even led some little orchestras once in a while. But anyway, I fell under his tutelage uh, to do silent film. And Lee's particular approach was not to follow history. He... Uh, wrote his scores. Uh, he was a studied musician who um, uh, worked with Aaron Copeland, and he worked with a number of people in France. Andre Marshall uh, was his uh, organ instructor over there. Anyway, Lee, Lee's approach was through composed new music, and so that's what he trained me to do for my first performance, October 31st, 1969. And, um, and right after that, I began uh, playing for the silent films for the film classes. And I used to play for the silent film uh, screenings on Wednesday nights in the local lecture hall that had a piano. And it was a real surprise when the Museum of Modern Art sent out, I'll never forget the first time I saw one of the original scores published and written to be gone with the movie. Uh, it was, it was, um, Bojess was the very first one I saw. And, uh, it's kind of funny. I think you've talked to any of the silent film musicians. You'll see that they go through this similar sequence of discovery. Um, in the beginning, the, the legend that they just make up, you do anything you want, you just play music, um, is sort of how everybody begins. And then it gradually gets into the world of, uh, you know, sort of academic consciousness where there is something that happened before and then gradually you realize that they actually played music all the way at the beginning of the silent movies. And, and then my particular uh, evolution was discovering these original scores, which do still sort of survive for almost all the famous movies all have their scores. And, uh, and I'll never forget that it was, it was such a discovery just to be reading music that matched the movie <laughs> and it was fully cued. It had an in cue and an out cue for the scene. And I'll never forget how much easier it was to read the music than it was to write and make up the, you know, actually compose music. It was, it was such a thrill. 
because the music was very obviously exactly matched to the film uh, in both the musical language and style and intent and, and even the, the pacing and the manner of the entrances and the exits. And it was all there. And so I was thrilled. And so I really started to, to push around to find the original scores. Fortunately, in the 60s, uh, the things were really available. Uh, these days, it's very hard to find them. But boy, in the beginning, it was great. I was able to get scores from the original musicians who played in the movies. And Anyway, so that, that was sort of how I began my career in doing this was my own score for Phantom of the Opera, which I replaced when I discovered the surviving original score. It's actually, there were five of them, and it's the second one, uh, the um, Winkler, uh, Heinrichs and Winkler score is the one that I restored for the, uh, let's see, I restored that one for uh, the Chicago Symphony, I think was the first time we did it. Uh, anyway, uh, and so I do these transcriptions to the organ for these, from these original orchestra score, uh, reading from the conductor part. And um, yeah, and so that's, I began doing that as soon as that turned up. I found it, it was really fun. Uh, the original organist for the original run in Philadelphia kept the score. She, uh, she kept the, the piano conductor score, they call it the PC. And uh, what happened is that in almost all these theaters, the orchestra would play in the evening show, the big evening show, the eight o'clock show. And then the organist would play solo for all the other shows through the day. And, and this organist, Vi Egger, was her name. And she started out at 10 o'clock in the morning and she played every two hours. She played band of the opera all through the day and then played the evening show after the eight o'clock show. Then she played the 10 o'clock show. And, <laughs> and they did that seven days a week. They didn't even get a day off. But anyway, Viager had the original score to Phantom. Uh, all, all printed out. All, all, it wasn't, wasn't a cue sheet. It's a, a fully printed out score. And, uh, and so that's what I played. Now that kind of assumes that the score is going to match the print that you have. And things like Phantom. Well, got... that is a major problem. That is a major problem, yeah you deal with the print you have and then you work with the original score to make it work with the print you have. It happened in the day too. Uh, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of fires uh, and there were broken print, you know, the, uh, the, the sprockets would get worn after several showings and, and the film would skip and then it would jam in the, yeah. in the house <laughs> and, and burn and you'd lose a scene, you know, it was quite, I've had all those things happen in my 50 some years of doing this, um, you know, all these things. And it shows even my own print. I'll never forget. I, sh I have my own gorgeous, absolutely beautiful reduction print taken from the 35 May of, um, of uh, Don Juan, the John Barrymore film. Sure. And uh, 16 millimeter. And I was showing this film and the idiot had uh, misthreaded uh, the second reel. And um, and he just tore up uh, like about the first uh, four minutes of the movie, uh. and so he just clipped it out and threw it away. <laughs> I'll never forget. I just was furious. <laughs> I got so I was able to get the, the sprockets restored uh, and then put back, so I didn't lose that scene. I just couldn't believe how cavalier people yeah. that project silent movies are, which just shows why it's so hard to get. Uh, archive prints. I've luckily been very conscious of this my whole career and have been able to get 
all of the major archives uh, because we make sure that we check the equipment and, and the, the handling of the print. And there's a whole, whole archive approval process for the projectionists, and I make them go through that. And then we show the movies at the right speed. I always make sure that, that we don't mess around with, with showing them at sound speeds, fixed, and all these delicacies that make the screenings authentic. That's my whole thing. I'm trying to make everything, it's continuity from the, from the past and everything authentic. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because I know that's something you're you're very much of the school that you should try and represent the original experience as opposed to, you know, people. Well, I'm always surprised that you call it the school. I'm very much of the school. Because <laughs> okay. what happens is that even this conversation raises the fact that when I got into this 52, 54 years ago, um, it was one of historical continuity the continuance of the profession, you know, the showing of the films, showing them as they were meant to be shown, showing them as the filmmakers made them, the film scores that were sent out with the movies, and then the, um, you know, using the equipment, 35 millimeter prints, and then original speeds. And, and, and for me, this is what silent film is. And somehow over the 50-some years, there's all these other people that have come up with the idea that silent film is an image. Uh, it isn't an experience. Um, and so that the idea of the music is something that's replaceable. And that always surprises me because, to me, uh, I understand the motivation for doing it, and there's all sorts of motivations. But to me, silent film is an experience, and all the components go into making that experience, including choosing to show it in public, in public screenings, in theaters, you know, historical theaters and using the original pipe organ equipment and, and, and historical continuity is what I'm doing. It's not replication. It's not preservation. It's not what was the one you use, you, whatever the word is, traditional or something. Um, it just is. This is what it is. And now there's all these other ways and their departures. And so, uh, and then we all have to make compromises at certain points because of the the, the continuity of um, the, everything that goes into it isn't always continuous. But the but for me, it isn't. <laughs> I don't know how you put it. Yeah. I've forgotten already how you said it, but it made me jump because I'm not of a school of thought. Right. This is what is. The rest of it are departures. There's not traditional scoring. It's the, the scoring. It is what silent film is. Now, you can replace it. There's alternates. There's alternate replacement. Sure. And there's some very high-quality things out there. Gorgeous things are being done. But the, the trick is that until people realize that the original actual music, which is for the film, issued with the film, heard by the audiences, intended by the filmmakers themselves, that until the people that excuse their alternate methods by saying that the original doesn't exist, right. um, you get into that world that you're attempting to create. It isn't, I mean, it just is. <laughs> silent film is a package. <laughs> and it's the experience of silent film is the point. Uh, you know, the, the delivery. I mean, a lot of people worship 35 millimeter prints. Well, yeah, 30, 35 millimeter prints are the source of what people saw. However, the image itself can be 
you know, replicate it as people can play in modern time who didn't live 100 years ago, can play the actual written music that was so that people could play the music for the film. But the point of the thing is the exercise is the is the experience of the of the films. And so there's a fixed experience. And within the historical period, there are numerous fixed versions. And so one still has when doing historical continuity, they played them with organ, they played them with piano, they played them with small ensembles, they played them with full symphonies, they played them in churches, concert halls, uh, you know, the whole bit. And until you're fully cognizant of the variety of approaches that, you you know, you've got to be conscious of all this stuff. Well, let's talk about, uh, I mean, speaking of continuity, I mean, you trained with people who had done this in silent theaters, I mean, going back Absolutely. to childhood. Uh, tell me about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, tell you about that is the idea that uh, I just took a passionate interest in uh, in all the aspects that lead to this profession so that uh, I was uncovered by uh, all these historical organists who met me when I was a child. And um, so I, my favorite one to describe what it was like, when I went to my lessons, with Leonard, nicknamed Melody Mac uh, McLean. Uh, he began playing for the silent cinema in 1916, and he was the leading Delaware Valley, which includes uh, Philadelphia and Baltimore and uh, a bundle of areas. But basically, he was centered in Philadelphia. And he was a classically trained organist. His teacher was Alexander McCurdy, who was the organ teacher for the Curtis Institute of Music, the most prestigious school in Philadelphia, uh, just as the Juilliard School is up in New York. Well, the Philadelphia version is the, is the uh, Alexander McCurdy training at the Curtis Institute. Well, anyway, he, he went through that. And, um, and there's all these stories to tell. But the point of the thing is that he was the guy who played all these giant theater pipe organs in these historic theaters. And uh, he played the biggest one in Philly. The biggest theater organ was at the Mass Bomb Theater, just a gigantic instrument, no longer in existence. The point of the story is he, he uh, it's, a, it's a tradition among all these organists back in the day and today, is that when they're seated at these big theater pipe organ consoles, that are like giant wedding cakes in ornamentation, um, you get your picture taken in the middle of it. And it's sort of like a pilot being taken, a picture sitting at a 747, you know, <laughs> all you're surrounded with all these controls. And it's just a big display thing. So there's all these pictures. And every time you took a new position, you get new pictures of yourself at the new organ that you're going to be playing all the time. Well, I would go in for my lessons when I was 14 years old. And I always thought he had a very strange taste in art because all of the framed uh, images on the walls, which completely went all the way around the studio, his Walnut Street studio in downtown Philadelphia, where he had an organ in there and a, and a grand piano. Uh, they were all framed pieces of cardboard, gray cardboard. <laughs> And I just thought that was the strangest thing. I never asked him, you know, you're 14 years old. You just go with whatever's going on, especially around adults. It's like, well, you know, you don't, you don't ask questions at age 14 bucks. And uh, it was just this big mystery. And it was finally solved 
years later when I was talking to his widow, and I just happened to mention how I always wondered why he framed cardboard, and she was real puzzled. And then it, it turned out that, that he knew. I only took classical organ lessons uh, from him. Uh, he said, you know enough about pop music. I'm not going to tell you about pop music. And so from him, I learned the training that he was given in 19 leading up to 1916, probably 1912 to 1916. And he gave me the pieces he studied. He gave me his sheet music. He gave me his tutor books. So I had the training of the first-class organist of the day. He just gave me the training he was given. Um, and so what happened is that he would, before my lessons, uh, he would turn the pictures against the wall <laughs> so that I wouldn't see all these fancy consoles. And he said, the, the quote was that I knew that if he ever saw one of those organs, he would never uh, do anything else. So that by hiding them from me, I had no idea what they were or anything about it. And so it was really quite, and the only one I'd seen was um, they used to have electronic organ stores in the shopping malls in the 1960s. And the idea was they're selling these. It was the number, in the 60s and early 70s, organs outsold pianos as the home instrument, uh, which is the first time in history right. <laughs> of all this music merchandising. You know, the piano was always king. But in the late 60s, 70s, it was organs. And the one thing that just, I still can see it, they had, that thing must have been 12 foot tall. They had a color-tinted, you know, hand-colored black-and-white photo of the, uh, of the Paramount Theater organ in Paramount Theater in, in, in Wurlitzer in uh, New York City. And it was, it was a reproduction picture that was the size of a billboard. It took the entire wall of this organ store in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I would go in there and just stare at that. So he was right. You know, when I saw these at that time, I didn't know what it was all about. But uh, it turns out, of course, that's what I end up doing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but that, that tells you the, the idea of working with these old guys is that these old guys knew that I was just really just I was just like them. A hundred, you know, 50 at that point, 50 years later. And so they were thrilled to meet me and they would jump at teaching me, giving me talks, uh, spending afternoons. I got to. Uh, this guy came down from New York just to teach me, um, uh, uh, C Dr. C.A.J. Parmentier, uh, <laughs> who was one of the three original organists who played in an organ trio. There were three pipe organ consoles that came up out of the pit at the Roxy Theater in downtown New York City. And he was the guy on the left in all the pictures showing the trio. Lou White was the number one guy, and he was the guy at the center console, and then these other two guys. And he would tell me stories about the silent movie days and the and the war officers. And but anyway, yeah, they were they. I I fell under their spell and teaching, and it was a thrill. It was a thrill because they were talking what I wanted to know. It was direct, you know. It's very rare you'll meet a 14-year-old kid and it knows exactly what he's going to do for the rest of his life. And, <laughs> and I very much, yeah, they, they, they all knew it. Um, and so it was, it was simply, but you know, it, 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 when you think about dealing with me as a child, you have to think about the famous quote that comes from Michelangelo, who was talking about uh, sculpt, sculpture. 
and I, I, it's, I don't have the exact wording, but essentially the idea is that he simply would take the block of marble that he so ever carefully would select. He would actually go out to the quarries and he would check all the veins and all the stress points and, and he would be able to tell how the marble would behave as he chipped away at it. But the point, his comment was that he simply took away the parts of the marble that weren't the sculpture. He's yeah. just removing what's yeah. already inside. And it's a really lovely uh, way to think about that. And, and so that I, as a child, was a person who was going to do this and everyone knew it. And so that they simply were, were giving me the things that are inside, you know. <laughs> oh, I'll give you a quick anecdote that tells you what it was like on my very first, my audition. My audition for, for Leonard, my dad brought me in to see the guy. And, uh, and so he said, uh, oh, I, I, I had some organ training with that, with these local people that played in local churches and things. And so I brought these various little pieces that I could play. And he could tell. He listened to me and he could tell. And he says, hey, play for me something that you like. I said, what? <laughs> Nobody ever asked me to do that, you know. And he said, well, I can tell that you're doing this. But, you know, I'm sure you play. I think your father told me you play in a rock band or something. He said, you know, play, play, just play something you like. And I immediately said, oh, man. He said, I went to this movie last night, and it's James Bond. And it was um, a movie called Dr. No. And I said, I just couldn't believe it. The music was so fantastic. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, and then I just sat there and told the story of the movie and actually played the whole score for him from the overture, the, you know, the big famous theme, and then the underneath the banyan tree, me, hun, me, and me, you know. Now, I could still, when I'm doing that for you, I'm still remembering it from when I saw that when I was like 14 years old and, and learned the piece from the, the score. And, um, and so I just played it. Now, I just did that. Uh, it, it was only years later that it, it, I determined that other people don't do that. <laughs> you know, I just thought you'd just go, go to movies and hear the music and go home and play it. I, you know, it didn't strike me that that was an unusual thing to do at all. Um, so by being able to do that, he immediately turned to my father and he says, oh, yes, I'll take him as a pupil. It was the fact that I did that that, gave, that got me my, 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 my studying with him. And, um, yeah, there were these organ clubs. We would go every Monday night, uh, every, every Monday night, every week. There was a different organ club because the organs were so popular in that period. And, of course, these veteran organists who were retired, they're up in their 70s and 80s. And, and so it gave them something to do, get out of the house and where people cared about them. And so they would show up. And so I got to meet a huge number of all these local New Jersey and Philadelphia area organists who used to play in the movies and, and became very close friends with Esther Higgins, who was what one would call in the field a journeyman player. Uh, she was the only musician. She married the um, manager of the theater and they lived in the apartment in the theater building over the, over the marquee. There was an apartment. So she never left the theater and she played all the shows from 10 o'clock in the morning until midnight. And she did it seven days a week. And to keep herself sort of occupied uh, uh, during the um, breaks while the audience was coming in, 
um, she kept a mouse in the drawer. There were these little drawers on the side of the console. And she kept a mouse, and she would play with this mouse and feed it cheese and things. <laughs> had something to do. She right. didn't even leave the console. She just sat there. And so, yeah, I, I, so I guess the thing that, that burns in out of these kind of conversation and recollections for you is for you to realize that it is historical continuity for me. Uh, these things are all immediate and and truth and fact and and handed down directly from from that time and they all go into uh, my playing and how I play and how I approach and what I do it's all the real thing it's just it's the continuity it's just a continuance of a full profession in all of its layers of how it was done uh, so that you know if a, if a score does not exist for a film I have all of the materials thousands of what they call generics. These are the pieces that were published for musicians to be able to put scores together. And there's 17 texts that I have in my library that were published in the day, how-to manuals on how to do it. You know, the actual, uh, uh, you know, step-by-step full instruction on how to make a score. So that uh, the idea that if the original score doesn't exist, well then, uh, that, that forces you to write a new score is just stupid because we have all the manuals and we have all the actual uh, continuity music, the, the generics that were published. We have all the libraries do fully exist and so that we have all the material to create a score just exactly the way they did it in the day. Yeah. So, you know, the excuse uh, and then the people that say, well, the old music is just not any good. It's just not worth hearing. It's just bad. And I really was set about back in the 80s when that became the trend. I really set about trying to figure out why. And it turned out that the people that were playing the original scores were hacking them. They didn't know how to play the original music in the styles and in the methods. I mean, you, you can look at the notes, but there's a, there's a thing in music that if you, when you study music, you'll learn there's a thing called common practice. Um, and common practice is that the guy who's writing the music, the composer, is writing down the notes to be played, but he knows that the musician who's reading those scores know the common practice, so they know what to do, the things he doesn't have to notate. So that the idea of the music not being any good, and it's boring, and it doesn't have anything to do with the movie, well, that's the guys that are playing it when these people that make those opinions, what they hear. So, you know, it's, there's a professional responsibility when you actually continue a profession. Um, and so that this falling into the hands of enthusiasts and amateurs who don't even think about the professional capacity of these people. I mean, I mean think about it. Eugene Ormandy entered America uh, coming in from the Netherlands and off the boat. He, he was in the second violin section in the uh, Capitol Theater Orchestra in New York City. And he played the violin. And then he made his way up to first violin section to concertmaster. And then when uh, Rothafel left being conductor and went off, I think he went off to, oh, I forgot now. But anyway, Eugene Ormandy stepped up and began conducting. And that was his conducting career. Root was playing for silent movies. This is Eugene Ormandy, Philadelphia Orchestra. And it's very fun that I went backstage to interview him when I was 16 years old. And 
And uh, he welcomed me into his dressing room, and I sat down, and I said, I'm here to talk about the silent movie days. And he said, I never had any, I never played for the silent films. I never had anything to do with the silent films. <laughs> thank, thank you for visiting, Mr. James. Good luck with your life. You know, it was one of these ushered right out of there. Uh, well, so I read an interesting story that I think would be worth relating about your very first uh, Halloween concert at uh, – Indiana University. Uh, they really related yeah. to the the time period. It was 1969, obviously, the time of uh, rioting. Not that we know anything with yeah. that, like what that's about. Oh yeah. Um, so tell oh, me about yeah. that. Well, I, I was fortunate. I was a sort of innate marketing kid uh, who knew how to sell things and get things to happen. And so we were in the midst of uh, the strikes. Uh, 69, it was the Nixon uh, bombing Cambodia. And, and uh, the kids, I mean, they were the shooting at Kent State was all, I, I don't remember that that was. I think right that was then. the next but year. Anyway, but yeah. It was that period. And so 1969, we were having serious uh, strikes. We were having marches. We were having, the, 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 they burned down the Roxy building. Uh, ROTC building. They burned it down. Uh, they took over buildings. They formed human chains around the music school, and I couldn't go inside the music school to go to class or to, or to practice. And, and so it was a really tough time. And right in the midst of it, right in the midst of it, I had this bright idea. I'd already been doing silent movies with live organ accompaniment uh, on the organ that Hoagie Carmichael, a famous composer and jazz guy, he went to school there and he played for the silent movies downtown in the Princess Theater on the two manual six rank SD theater organ. And when the, there was some organ buff guy that was associated with the school and he got that organ donated from the downtown theater and put into a radio station. And it was supposed to be, yeah, that was the excuse so that they got the organ on campus. And it was never used. It's just sitting there. But uh, but I found it and started showing silent movies there. And so I had this bright idea. They had put a big pipe organ in the school auditorium, 3,800-seat auditorium. And I thought, well, I should show. My dad used to tell me about Family Opera, and he went to the movie when he was six years old, when it was first shown, and uh, and told me all about it. And and so I said, I, I, I'll show Family Opera. And uh, and, and and to sell it, that's the thing, is I came up with this campaign just to create a slogan that everybody didn't know what it meant. And it was that the, fan, the phantom is coming. And I just put that slogan and I, I made all these little banners and I would uh, attack them on the trees, on every, camp, every tree on campus, uh, which is you're in the hundreds. I would uh, write it in chalk on the, on the um, sidewalks. I would run through the between classes. I would run into the into the chalkboards and write the phantom is coming, so the next class in would see it before the teacher erased it. And I I took these banners and put them on the inside of the toilet lids in all of the dorms, <laughs> so that when you raise the lid, you would see phantom is coming. And I did that for thirty days, the entire month of October. And uh, on the front page of the newspaper, I knew the people down at the newspaper and we would they have these things called column fillers back then where, you know, to fill up with type. So they didn't just have a little blank space. They would put some little column filler. And I just had them put the phantom is coming at the end of all these articles on the front page. <laughs> it was funny. And uh, anyway, 
So it was a fever pitch, and it was never explained until the day of the show. The day of the show, I, I got a full-page ad about the show, and on the front page, the entire bottom half of the front page of the school newspaper was the story about what I was going to do with a silent movie and everything. And exactly that is that what happened is it sold out. Um, I had hand printed. I, I, you know, uh, there's a lot of stories to tell, but the big one is that I hand printed 400 tickets in the craft shop on a, on a hand silkscreen press. I created these print, hand printed tickets. I still have some of them. It's really fun. <laughs> and, um, and what happened is we, I had 400 tickets. And so 4,200 people showed up. <laughs> and so we just kept re reselling these tickets. And then we ended up just taking the cash and putting it in um, trash. You know, we got these sort of trash buckets and uh, they just threw the dollar bills in the trash buckets. And it was really cool. And that gave me an introduction to the world of show business in that I paid for a whole year of school and one performance. It's like, <laughs> bam, oh, this is a great idea. It's better than fake sales and car washes, you know. <laughs> so anyway, the story, the versions, the part of it, did I cover the part that you wanted to know? About yes, it, yes. The, the fantastic success of it, not what I actually did, but the, the music and the movie, it was just the idea of doing this again for a modern audience, my contemporaries, and then doing the score. And, and there you go. And that started me off. I started being asked to do this on college campuses all over the Midwest. And I started traveling into Illinois and up to Michigan and all over Indiana and playing these shows uh, in these school auditoriums. And that, that sort of led then gradually into the theaters. And by within a year, I started playing in the old movie theaters and they still had the projectors and you could still get prints and the organs were still there. And yeah. So. And now 52 anyway. years later, you're going to be back there uh, playing it, playing it again. Hey, yeah. Oh yeah. It's great. Yeah. And, and, and it was really fun to go back to the 50th anniversary because we uh, did the Phantom of the Opera this time with the school orchestra. And I brought in a conductor, a young conductor I worked with out of uh he was he was a student I worked with out of South Carolina, and uh, it was really a lovely performance because what happened is that this this kid when he was about six years old, his dad took me to see me play in uh, Buffalo, New York, where the kid was growing up, and from hearing me play the score for a silent movie, he decided to become a musician and became a conductor, and then. In his graduate program, I ended up being at his school, and he conducted the score. And so I invited him to come to IU, and he conducted the school orchestra, and I played the organ. And we had, as I remember, 2,800 people turned up. And every year, I've been I've been there every year, all the whole time. It's every year we do this, and um, different film, Phantom of the Opera. We rotate about every four or five years. I do Phantom, and. Um, and so we showed the fandom, and I, I always have the people raise the hands who were there at that very first show. And last last year, there were six people raised their <laughs> hands in the audience that were still there from 51 years ago. It was really, really, really cute to see us all get gray hair, and, and <laughs> we've all aged. But uh, I still get to do that. So I'm still a kid at heart, you know, with a ver doing the very thing I started my whole professional career. There we are, every year. <laughs> ¶¶
A link to Dennis James' fall schedule will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Olivia Babler, Yasmin Dasuki, Jay Weisberg, and Dennis James. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. It's always nice to hear what people think about the show. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Maybe even at a live show again someday. <laughs>